It's September 1718 in Virginia. Governor Alexander Spotswood and Ellis Brand, the captain of HMS Lime, are down in the dank, wet hold with the prisoner. Strapped in irons is William Howard, a sailor and a former pirate. Howard accepted the king's pardon months ago. He's technically a free man, but he was arrested and forced aboard the Lime to explain how he came to be in possession of 50 pounds. Hardly high treason, but enough to justify interrogating an ex-pirate. For months, rumors of pirate activity have snaked their way up the coast from North Carolina to Virginia and back to Governor Spotswood. Alexander Spotswood hates pirates above all else. To him, pirates are toxic. They are weeds that need rooting out before they can spread, before they can strangle colonial society. For years, he's petitioned the Crown to act. But now, he's taking matters into his own hands. Spotswood has spies in North Carolina who now report a growing number of pirates collecting there. And not just any pirates, one in particular. In July, the Boston Herald reported a vessel ran aground on Topsail Inlet, rumored to be the notorious pirate ship Queen Anne's Revenge. Blackbeard's flagship. Now, Standing over the fearful William Howard, Spotswood can get the answers for himself. You see, Howard is a known associate of Blackbeard. More than that, he was his quartermaster, a trusted lieutenant. Captain Ellis Brand begins the interview. At first, Howard plays dumb, but Brand wasn't expecting it to be easy. The exact tactics Brand and Spotswood used to interrogate their prisoner are unknown, but it's safe to assume the experience was less than pleasant. Eventually, Howard spills his measly black guts out. He confirms Blackbeard is alive and well and operating out of North Carolina, unchecked by the local authorities. Spotswood has Howard locked up in Williamsburg's jail. In spite of the king's pardon in Howard's pocket, he will be tried as a pirate. Spotswood also begins to formulate a plan to destroy Blackbeard once and for all. But Spotswood's motivations may not be quite as noble as they seem. On a personal level, Blackbeard's arrival has come at an opportune moment. The governor's position is precarious. He is widely distrusted, having used colonial funds to fatten his wallet. His opponents want him removed from office. The threat of Blackbeard, then, is also a golden opportunity, as lucrative and tempting as any pirate booty. The Crown has made hunting pirates a priority. For once, it seems, colonial and royal interests are aligned and Spotswood finds himself in a position to deliver an unparalleled prize, Blackbeard's head. 
I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. It's late June, 1718. A warm breeze washes over Blackbeard as he struts across the deck of the eight-gun sloop, the Adventure. He feels weightless and somewhat relieved. The sinking of the 40-gun Queen Anne's Revenge was bold. But he's now free from its notoriety, as well as its large crew. He's also free of Steed Bonnet and Bonnet's supporters, who he left marooned on an island. He has quite literally shed the burden of his great pirate fleet, and in doing so, gone some way to reducing the problem of his own outgrown reputation. Or so he hopes. Blackbeard's downsized company now sails up the creek towards Bath, North Carolina's village capital. A contemplative Blackbeard wipes his sweaty brow and returns to his cabin. Sitting at his desk, cluttered with stacks of books, rolled charts and nautical instruments, he swigs water from a pewter mug while the rock of the boat comforts him. It's clear to him, at least, that the sun is swiftly setting on piracy. The pirate haven of Nassau won't survive much longer, and fighting the crown is a suicide mission. It is time for a change in tactics. But Blackbeard doesn't intend on a quiet retirement. He's come too far to make an honest living now. No, Blackbeard plans to adapt to this new landscape and find another way to make his fortune. But he's going to need some help. Luckily, he knows just the man, Governor Charles Eden of North Carolina. Colin Woodard is a journalist and author of The Republic of Pirates. 
his whole plan was not just to take a pardon, but to go find a malleable governor that he could take a pardon from, sure, but could set up a business arrangement where he'd be sort of a Tony Soprano-like figure, right? I'm just running a legitimate waste disposal service here, right? I pay my taxes. I play golf with the governor, right? And in the meantime, running drugs, giant bales of cash, right? Well, that's what Blackbeard was trying to set up in North Carolina. All the governors of all the colonies were allowed to issue the king's pardon. And so he received the king's pardon, not from the usual places, not from going to Jamaica or to Bermuda or Barbados, but rather from the governor of this little pitiful colony. Blackbeard knows he cannot simply sail into a major colonial port like Jamaica. He's a wanted man. The voyage alone would be far too dangerous. But Blackbeard's choice of North Carolina is a strategic move in more ways than one. Bath, in 1718, is North Carolina's oldest town and administrative hub. But it's no bustling metropolis, just a small village with a hundred or so residents. A frontier town at the edge of the empire. It's exactly the kind of backwater town Blackbeard needs. Small, poor, and bribable. For Blackbeard, it's not just the corruptible colonial officials that make it appealing. Far from any naval presence, it's a location that has attracted pirates for years. Jeremy Moss is the author of The Life and Trials of the Gentleman Pirate, Steed Bonnet. As early as 1684, North Carolina had developed a reputation of harboring pirates. So it was a place that pirates could go. Not necessarily because the governments were inattentive, I think that they were, but because there was so much land area to cover and so many inlets and safe havens and islands throughout the Outer Banks and coastal North Carolina, that the government simply didn't have the resources, naval or otherwise, to go and spook out and find and forcibly remove these pirates. But does Blackbeard have another less obvious reason for remaining in North Carolina in the summer of 1718? He can't go north for fear of the Navy. But Blackbeard also knows that heading south poses a different problem. The force that all mariners fear most. The weather. The other thing that I think is important is the timing, right? So it's not uncommon for pirates like Blackbeard to spend time in either the northernmost portions of the American colonies to avoid the hurricane season of the fall or to go deep down into the Gulf of Mexico for the same reason. I think that he was simply unwilling to travel through the hurricanes that could decimate huge armadas of ships like the Treasure Fleet in 1715. So Blackbeard probably had in mind that he was going to take time to rest in near Bath. It's a foul night in Bath in the summer of 1718. Rain batters the shutters, shielding the grand colonial mansion's windows from the storm outside. Inside, following a fine dinner, Blackbeard compliments Governor Charles Eden on the elegance of his home. Oil lamps flicker and shadows dance on the walls. The two men smoke pipes, clouds of blue smoke hanging between them. What was really said at this meeting is lost to history, but it is thought that they quickly struck a deal. Blackbeard and Eden both know North Carolina is vulnerable, undermined by a weak economy, 
and they both know Blackbeard has the means to boost it. The pirates have a small stash of coin and other treasure from their last year of raids. Moreover, Blackbeard can funnel plenty more into the town, so long as Eden doesn't ask where it comes from. But the influx of questionable money and goods isn't Eden's only incentive. Another war with Spain is brewing, and Blackbeard can offer vital protection to the weakly defended colony and her trade. It's likely both are aware of the irony. Blackbeard reaches his hand across the desk. Grinning, Eden takes it and agrees to the terms. Between the men are the royal pardons. Charles Eden's signature is still wet on the parchment. They raise a glass of brandy and toast their new arrangement. It seems pretty clear from the circumstances and events that Blackbeard and Eden came together and had a wink-wink, nudge-nudge kind of deal going. Blackbeard and his close companions would, in quotes, settle down and become respectable citizens of this little village capital, along with all of their weapons and fighting skills to defend the place if another conflict were to break out or if there were an intercolonial war and suddenly North Carolina was threatened, they would be helpful in that respect. However, not all of Blackbeard's men want to stay in Bath. Some wish to make use of their newfound freedom. With fresh pardons, a handful of the crew decides to set off for New York and Pennsylvania, where prospects of employment are better. Now, only 20 or so men remain with Blackbeard. But if Eden had hoped the pirates would seamlessly fit in with the farmers and merchants of Bath, he was to be quickly disappointed. It takes more than a signature on a piece of paper to rehabilitate a pirate. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Why We Love Pirates, The Hunt for Captain Kidd and How He Changed Piracy Forever. Blackbeard and his men were known to be going throughout Bath and partying and full of raucous behavior, pillaging even and destroying the town in a lot of different ways. There were several stories of him drinking in excess with the farmers of Bath. Johnson's A General History of Pirate describes how he would bring rum and sugar to the farmers, sometimes to compensate them for some of the disorder that he caused, sometimes, as Johnson would say, because of the liberties that Blackbeard and his crew took with the wives and daughters of these farmers. The pirates were going around and occasionally seizing people's boats on the creek leading up to Bath from the open ocean and stuff, but it was in the interests of Governor Eden and his colony to keep the pirates close. Despite the trouble caused, the pirates settle in. In fact, Blackbeard, it seems, is getting quite cozy in his new environment. By all accounts, the wild-eyed pirate captain has taken a wife. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Charles Johnson's A General History of Pirates says Blackbeard married a young creature of about 16 years of age. Information on Blackbeard's wife in Bath is sparse. Her name is Mary Ormond, 
and she is the daughter of a local landowner. It's impossible to know if Blackbeard has married for love or for more practical reasons. Perhaps Blackbeard is eyeing up the Ormond family's prosperous plantation as part of his retirement fund. In Charles Johnson's typically colourful version of events, Blackbeard was a sinful bigamist and Mary Ormond was just his latest conquest. As with much of Blackbeard's legend, it's hard to tell fact from fiction. Now, there have been kind of legends about Blackbeard in terms of all of his wives. Johnson himself states that Blackbeard had at least 14 of them. We don't really have records of 14 women married to Blackbeard, although it's possible maybe as he went to different ports, he would consider himself to be married to different women because captains could perform legal marriages. I managed to find the Royal Navy captains up there in Virginia who were conspiring with Governor Spotswood to put an end to Blackbeard, were collecting all the intelligence they possibly could. And in their letters, one of them mentions that Blackbeard has taken a wife in Bath. So in fact, that part does appear to be true. The historical evidence seems to suggest that Blackbeard did marry and is perhaps planning for a life after piracy. It makes sense. Because if he's going to be a law-abiding citizen in North Carolina, getting married is going to be all part of his new life there. You could say maybe it was a form of assimilation. Maybe he really did want to settle down and this was a way he could finally do it. Get married, have children, and really kind of establish himself into a community. Clearly, it's a practical match for Blackbeard. But one has to wonder what it was really like for his young bride. Once again, Johnson's account is vivid and, in this case, disturbing. He writes, It was Blackbeard's custom to invite five or six of his brutal companions to come ashore, and he would force her to prostitute herself to them all, one after another, before his face. Johnson's portrayal of Blackbeard and his marriage in A General History of the Pirates is quite horrible. According to Johnson, he forces her to prostitute herself to his men, and Blackbeard just kind of stands by and watches. By putting these details of his marriage into the book, what it would do is it would paint Blackbeard in a more of a horrific light. Mary Ormond was a real person. Her family existed. She supposedly lived until the mid 1750s. So this could have also been a political thing for Johnson to paint Blackbeard in such a negative light towards her because if they're a real family and if they were a wealthy family, they're not going to want to be known as someone who gladly married off their daughter to a notorious pirate. So this could be another way to kind of spare her the indignity of having a reputation as someone willfully marrying a pirate. Johnson's account paints a horrifying reality for poor Mary Ormond. But it's probably best to take it with a large pinch of salt. So the thing with all these pirates is trying to separate fact from fiction. Most of these stories about Blackbeard and his many wives and prostituting his young wife and all that, there's no evidence for any of it. If you go through a timetable of every day in Blackbeard's life and tracing where he went, he didn't have time to do any of those things, nor was there any mention of it in any of the records until the general history just starts making up these stories to make Blackbeard a more exciting character. It's likely the 14 wives of Blackbeard are a work of fiction, either created by Charles Johnson or were rumours later reported by him. Whether or not Mary Ormond was his only wife, it seems he did once have a family. Recent documents uncovered in the Church of England register in Jamaica indicate Blackbeard may have had a daughter. 
What's interesting is that there is a deed that was written for the Teach family or Thatch family living in Jamaica. And the deed mentions a girl named Elizabeth Teach as part of the family. The child Elizabeth wouldn't be old enough to realistically be his father and stepmother's child. So there's a possibility maybe this child could actually belong to Blackbeard, but we're not quite sure. It's the only piece of evidence that we have that shows that Blackbeard may have had a family of his own before entering into his pirate career. If this is true, it begs more questions about the man who became Blackbeard. Why didn't he return to Jamaica for his daughter? Why did he leave her in the first place? Who was her mother? These questions remain to be answered. Perhaps Thatch was once a family man. As with all things pirate, all we have now are scraps and clues, and of course, the myths that rush into the spaces in between. It's August 22nd, 1718, just east of Bermuda. The scorching sun beats down on Blackbeard as he and his crew stalk the open waters on the hunt for foreign vessels. After months of laying low in Bath, Blackbeard has been eager to get back to pirating. Only this time, he thinks the government of North Carolina protects him. Blackbeard's cunning plan is to raid foreign ships that won't recognize him. After two weeks of a luckless hunt, two large French merchant ships on their way from Martinique to France are in view. The Rose Emilie and the smaller Toison d'Or, and only the Emilie is armed. Blackbeard goes in for the attack. The French captain spots the incoming pirates and their small sloop. He orders the gunner to fire. French cannons blast a hole in the side of the adventure. Blackbeard responds with expert ease. Even without a fleet at his back, Blackbeard is more than a match for most ships. Even ships twice the size, apparently. The pirates quickly overtake both vessels and board them. With Blackbeard leading the charge, the French soon surrender. What valuables the smaller French ship possesses are brought aboard the Rosemilie, which Blackbeard has decided to take, along with her rich cargo of sugar and cocoa. The unharmed French crew are transferred to the empty ship and set free. They watch helplessly as Blackbeard sails away in the adventure with their prize in tow. Little does Blackbeard know, this attack is the beginning of the end. On September 12th, Blackbeard brings the French ship to Ocracoke Island, an uninhabited nine-mile-long strip of land just off North Carolina. It's here he has set up his new base of operations. Blackbeard's crew are hard at work, unrigging the French vessel. Its mast, spars and lines are dismantled and brought aboard the adventure. The pirates offload the goods. With this done, Blackbeard must secure a legal right to the plunder. It's midnight on the 13th 
of September. Under cover of darkness, Blackbeard brings his spoils into Bath. First, he goes to Tobias Knight's house. He is the next door neighbor of Governor Charles Eden and North Carolina's Chief Justice and His Majesty's Collector of Customs. Blackbeard brought the French vessel back to Ocracroke, and while his crew unloaded the cargo of the ship, Blackbeard set off in a small boat with a series of gifts for Bath authorities, right? Rum, sugar, cocoa, and several small boxes with unknown contents. So he would arrive, it's reported, at the house of Tobias Knight around midnight. He wouldn't leave until the next morning. Um, and when he emerged, no gifts left in his hands. The next day, Governor Eden would grant him full salvage rights to this French ship, which Blackbeard alleged that he had found abandoned at sea with no men and no papers, a ghost ship floating around without anybody attached to it. Under oath, Blackbeard swears the French vessel and goods were found by him as a wreck at sea. And Governor Eden readily accepts this story. Governor Eden said that it was legal because the ship was actually abandoned. Blackbeard hadn't attacked anybody. He hadn't robbed anyone. He hadn't killed anybody. And so it was not an act of piracy. And he's also still basically a law-abiding citizen under this pardon. That's not all. Eden gives Blackbeard the go-ahead to sink the French vessel, destroying any evidence of his piracy. But Blackbeard's antics have reached Virginia's governor, Alexander Spotswood. Few hate pirates like Spotswood. He prosecutes them with relish. And now he learns of pirates gathering just over the border, near Bath, practically on his doorstep, under the protection of the North Carolina government. Spotswood is outraged. Alexander Spotswood was the governor of Virginia, which was one of the most prosperous and important of the colonies on the British North American seaboard. And Virginia was very different than North Carolina. It's an aristocratic society. They're sitting right next to North Carolina, which is this rugged, roughshod place. Word of what was going on had gotten to him, and he was aristocratic. He was definitely imperious and used to getting his way. And he was concerned also that if Blackbeard had set up this pirate base just to his south, that Blackbeard might be threatening the security of the shipping going into the mouth of the Chesapeake Bay. Perhaps if Blackbeard had not been so brazen in Bath, he might not have attracted the laser-like attention of Spotswood. It's really the taking of these French ships were the last straw for Governor Spotswood. In an October 22nd, 1718 letter, Governor Spotswood wrote back to England about his concerns related to the taking of the ship. It was clear that Spotswood was certainly on edge. Spotswood saw that there was still criminal behavior, piratical behavior happening from Blackbeard. Spotswood is willing to go to any lengths to see the pirates destroyed. But Blackbeard's arrival is also something of a godsend for the Virginian governor, whose political career has stumbled lately. His corruption is catching up with him. Blackbeard's crimes allow Spotswood to divert attention from his own misdeeds, allowing him to act the hero. His personal hatred of pirates will just make his next decision all the more straightforward. 
It's early October 1718 in Virginia. Inside his lavish mansion, within his sumptuous study, Alexander Spotswood sits behind his large oak desk and plots Blackbeard's downfall and perhaps his own salvation. In secret, he meets with two Royal Navy captains, Ellis Brand of the HMS Lime and George Gordon of the HMS Pearl. Together, they devise an audacious plan. But why all the secrecy? Despite his best efforts, Virginia is still crawling with former pirates, many of whom were friendly with Blackbeard. There are also plenty of his own kind, merchants and landowners, who have business interests with the villains. Spotswood tells Brand and Gordon that he can't tell the colony's legal assembly for fear that word will get back to Blackbeard. But perhaps, more importantly, their plan to go after Blackbeard is illegal. Their plan is to invade North Carolina. Spotswood goes and essentially conspires with the captains of the two Royal Navy station ships stationed to defend the Chesapeake and Virginia and creates a perfectly illegal plan whereby this colony will invade a separate proprietary colony, right? The lieutenant governor, the acting governor of Virginia has absolutely no right to be invading North Carolina. And the Royal Navy is, has no role in helping him do so, right? But instead, they actually do this. They have one officer from one of the Royal Navy vessels lead a detachment of men across the Great Dismal Swamp to invade North Carolina overland and to get to Bath. And then in a pincher movement, they have a whole bunch of Royal Navy sailors sail quietly down the inlets and stuff to North Carolina. They'd work their way up the creek, essentially capturing the pirates one way or another, right? The landed group would arrive from the back of Bath, the interior side, and say, boo. And if the pirates tried to escape down the river, they would run into the advancing naval detachment headed the other way, that there would be no escape for the pirates. But all this was completely illegal. In addition to hunting down Blackbeard, Spotswood is pushing for a new law, the Act to Encourage the Apprehending and Destroying of Pirates. If Spotswood can pass it, it will justify his actions of invasion. Blackbeard is the only pirate directly mentioned in this law, with a capture set at a hundred pounds. He decides to pass this act, basically encouraging people to apprehend pirates because he's going to be giving his own personal reward for it. It's going to allow people to kind of take some of their own power against piracy, maybe give themselves some of their own prestige. And it's also kind of taking the onus a little bit off Spotswood himself. This act to encourage or apprehend the destroying of pirates is really more likely a way for Spotswood to restore his good name and his political standing in the colony. It was a pure political power move to regain the trust and confidence of the people of Virginia. And he did that, as even modern politicians do, by exercising military control and, and sending off for a high-profile capture of a known criminal. While Spotswood plans his attack, Blackbeard is oblivious. In fact, he thinks he's covering his tracks. He continues to loot and raid ships, but to avoid the accusation of pirating, he will force a trade with the vessel he's captured. 
He leaves raided ships with a token exchange of cheap, useless goods, while he gets away with valuable sugar, tobacco, wine, which he'll then sell on to the good people of North Carolina. This is his new line of business, import-exports, at the point of a cutlass. Little does he know, the noose is tightening around his neck. What Blackbeard didn't count on when he set himself up in North Carolina was that the authorities in adjacent colonies would actually violate the law to get him. You know, he felt he was in sanctuary. It's the second week of October 1718 in North Carolina. The pirate captain, Charles Vane, sails up the Pamlico Sound. Charles Vane is searching for his old friend Blackbeard. He has a proposition for him. As Vane's ship comes around the backside of Ocracoke Island, he spots a heavily armed sloop. It's the adventure. Blackbeard, elated at the unexpected arrival of his pirate pals, welcomes them over. It's a time of revelry and partying. The men regale each other with tales of their adventures over drinks and a feast. The mood, however, sobers when Vane tells Blackbeard why he sought him out. Nassau is now under the Crown's authority. The once thriving pirate haven is being dismantled piece by piece, or rather, pardon by pardon. The king's act of clemency has ruined the pirate way of life, decimating their numbers. But Vane isn't willing to let it go. He believes the pirates will rise up again when the black flag once again flies over the fort at Nassau. But he needs help. He wants to get the old band back together, the legendary flying gang, or what's left of it. Both men stand in silence. Blackbeard looks out at his ship, bobbing in the water as Vane waits for his decision. The meetup between Edward Teach or Blackbeard and Charles Vane, which included other really significant pirate captains, John Rackham, Calico Jack, right? Robert Deal, Israel Hands, who had sailed with Blackbeard. It's represented one of the largest pirate festivals of all time. It also showed that there was no real central place for pirates to meet, that there was no pirate republic at the time. After two days of drinking with Charles Vane, Blackbeard watches him sail off and disappear around Ocracoke Island and back out into the Atlantic. He won't join Vane's quest to retake Nassau. Blackbeard knows a fool's errand when he sees one. Ironically, in spite of his pragmatism and rational thinking, this chance meeting may have sealed Blackbeard's fate. The reports that get went back to Spotswood is that the pirates were in fact planning to build a fortress on Ocracroke and turn the island into another Madagascar. And even the simple presence, regardless of what their intentions were, the simple presence of all these pirate captains nearby would have scared Spotswood into taking action. This will be the last time Blackbeard will ever see Vane or anyone from his days in Nassau. Governor Spotswood's plans are in full motion to take down Blackbeard. His days as a mob boss are numbered. 
It's a quiet morning on November 22, 1718, off Ocracoke Island. It's been one month since Blackbeard partied with Charles Vane and turned down his offer to join his mission to retake Nassau. And just last night, Blackbeard and his crew threw another soiree with a passing merchant. As the sun rises and seagulls squawk, the pirates are nursing hangovers. They don't realize one of the two military groups commissioned by Spotswood has already crossed, illegally, into Virginia, hunting them. And the second group, led by Lieutenant Robert Maynard, now approaches them with armed sailors in two commandeered merchant ships, the Ranger and the Jane. Maynard stands on the bow of the Jane and scans the banks of Ocracoke through his scope. He spots Blackbeard's anchored sloop, the Adventure. He notices little movement aboard the pirate's ship. It appears the Navy has the element of surprise. Maynard gives the signal to the ranger. It's time to move in. As it happens, both of these pincer movements worked and they arrived on their respective ends of North Carolina. And as it turned out, Blackbeard and his men were at Ocracoke at the beach, having been involved in dismantling vessels. They had been throwing some raucous party into the night and were hung over and didn't even wake up when the small Royal Naval vessels circled the outside of Ocracoke Island from the sea and started approaching them. On the deck of the adventure, a lanky crewman with greasy blonde hair freezes. He gulps, seeing the two merchant sloops cutting across the water in their direction. A hot jolt of panic goes through him as British flags unfurl. He sounds the alarm, stirring the pirates. Bursting from the captain's cabin, tired and hungover, Blackbeard storms onto the midship and locks eyes on the approaching sloops commanded by Maynard. Blackbeard gives the order to get underway. The Ranger and Jane barrel down on the pirates through the musket fire. The Jane comes within half a pistol shot of the adventure, and Blackbeard, wild with rage, drinks damnation upon Maynard and his crew, saying he won't give nor take quarter. Blackbeard unleashes his firepower and broadsides the Ranger and Jane. The bombardment kills the Ranger's captain and severely wounds a handful of others. The Jane has its share of wounded, but continues after the adventure. Maynard orders the remaining crew below deck. It's looking out for Blackbeard. He thinks he's killed everyone. The gap between the adventure and Jane closes. Grapples tether the ships. As Blackbeard and his pirates board the sloop, Maynard's men, hidden below, charge the boarding party. Pirates and soldiers cut each other down with muskets, pistols, and cutlasses. In the chaos on the smoky deck, Blackbeard slices and chops at naval officers, killing for the first time in his piratical career. Blackbeard is shot, but he pushes through the pain and continues fighting. Five more shots hit Blackbeard. Riddled with bullets, he goes down. 
Maynard stands over the pirate's body, covered in blood, dirt and sweat. When the pirates see their captain is dead, many jump overboard in an attempt to swim away. Maynard orders his men to shoot the pirates thrashing in the water. The remaining pirates have no choice but to surrender. And as a final act of victory, Maynard severs Blackbeard's head. Edward Thatch, Blackbeard, the most notorious pirate in the Americas, is dead. His headless body is tossed into the water and slowly slips away into the darkness, down to Davy Jones's locker. Blackbeard's head is displayed on the bowsprit of Maynard's ship like a gruesome, grimacing figurehead. It's a morbid trophy. There it stays throughout the journey back to Virginia and Governor Spotswood, who takes his trophy and mounts it on a pike. A warning to pirates everywhere. Blackbeard's death in November of 1718 had huge implications on the, on the colonial and pirate world. First and perhaps foremost, it solidified Governor Spotswood's reputation of being a fervent pirate hunter. That his reputation was not all for his best. In fact, for years, even after the death of Blackbeard, he wrote to England concerned about the travel back um, and refused to travel back to England unless he had a significant armada to protect him. So it's almost like he puts himself in the witness protection program, right? He's not ready to, to go out and, and sail without significant protection because he had that reputation as a pirate hunter. Governor Eden would continue to serve in a capacity uh, as governor. I don't know that the death of Blackbeard and his colony had any significant impact on his reputation. If anything, historically, it gave him a level of infamy that we still 300 years later are talking about him. Charles Johnson's book, The General History of Pirates, is released just six years after Blackbeard's death. The book is a bestseller, which immortalizes Edward Thatch as one of the most notorious pirates to ever sail the seas. It is largely thanks to Johnson that the pirates became the stuff of myth and legend. Blackbeard has become not only kind of this mythical pirate, but he's become one of the most memorable pirates ever to have existed. No story about piracy exists without a mention of Blackbeard. And part of this is thanks, not just to history, but in thanks to Captain Charles Johnson. So a general history of the pirates basically takes what's happened, this larger than life, stranger than fiction story, embellished it to make it just a bit more entertaining and then launched Blackbeard into historical memory. Today, the figure of Blackbeard continues to fascinate us. Historians search for priceless new information as they strive to piece together a complete picture of who Edward Thatch really was. But 300 years after the pirate's death, that task is only getting harder. The historical figure of Blackbeard is receding further into the distance, while the myths and the legends become ever stronger. Next week on Real Pirates. In the wake of Blackbeard's death, 
many of his surviving crew don't survive for very long. They will soon face the hangman in Virginia. But what has become of his former partner, Steed Bonnet? During the time Blackbeard was running his crime syndicate in North Carolina, Steed Bonnet was engaging in his own post-pardon career. Did he fare any better? When Bonnet discovers Blackbeard's betrayal, it sets him on a path that will ensure his own legend is secure. Join us next week for Bonnet's Revenge. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Beckson. Written by Luke Coons. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.